You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Father in heaven, I just want to echo and say amen to everything that Pastor Josh has just prayed. We need you to give us grace in this moment to hear from you in the preaching of your word. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was uh, on Saturday, April the 15th, around 6.45 in the morning over in the conference room just this way. There were about 30 men who were meeting together as part of the city's institute. And it was our fourth session together in our course on Christian formation and Pastor Mike Schumann was leading the session. And he was talking about how, how we think about what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, Mike said that when it comes to our growth in Christ's likeness or, or just when it comes to just the, the basic meaning of the Christian life, he said, we all have some vision for what that is. We all, we all have, every single one of us, we have some idea or some image in our minds of what it, what it means to follow Jesus. And, and Pastor Mike said that he suspects that for many Christians in our country, that vision for the ideal Christian life is to pursue the American dream as much as possible without losing your soul. He said that we tend to aim for this place of maximum permissible worldliness and minimum permissible Christ-likeness. How can we be worldly enough to fit in with those who hate God but still Christian enough to be considered a Christian. Basically, this, this kind of thinking wants to be a Christian in a just get your foot in the door kind of way. That's how some, that's how some people think. But now in your case, beloved, we are convinced of better things, things that belong to salvation. Because we know, we know that salvation in Christ is much more than just getting your foot in the door. The book of Hebrews definitely shows us that salvation is something much deeper. Salvation means to have fellowship with the living God. I just want to show you this right away in the language of chapter 7. So just look at chapter 7, verses 19 and 22. Verse 19, look at this. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see that, those last words there? There's a better hope, and what does this better hope get you? It gets you nearness with God. Look at verse 22. Consequently, he, Jesus, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So salvation to the uttermost, like the whole hog of salvation, which Jesus is able to give us, it means we get closer to God. It means we draw nearer to God. This is not just getting your foot in the door. 
This is living, living in the same room. It's being seated at his table. This means that we call, we get to call, we will call, we do call the very presence of God our home. It's home. That is salvation in Christ. And any lesser idea of what salvation means is less than Christian. It's less than biblical. It trivializes the glory of Jesus, and it is not worthy of our time. And so that's just not what we're doing here, church. That's not what we want. That's not what we're about. We want more of God. We want to live closer to God. We want, if you remember from Leviticus, we want that Edenic movement. Remember that? That Edenic movement of moving closer and closer to God. We want the presence of God and the power of God and the ways of God to absolutely overcome us. We want to reorient everything about our lives to be about God. We want that because that is the salvation that Jesus gives us. That's what he gives us. It's the hope of a new covenant, which is a better hope, a better covenant, a better salvation. And so now in this passage, what I want to do is I want to show you how Jesus gives us that. I want to show you in this this passage from verses 20 to 28, there are three points here that we're going to see as to how Jesus gives us this better salvation. Now, each of these points, you're going to, you'll see, each of the points are kind of connected like this, okay? So it's kind of unraveling is what we're going to do. But look at the first point here. This is in verses 19 to 22. This is the first point. This gives you an idea of how this is going to go. (laughs) Jesus gives us a better salvation because by God's oath, he is our high priest like Melchizedek. Okay, got that? Pick it up in verse 20. Look at verse 20. And I'll summarize, I want to summarize the writer's argument up to verse 19. Um, he's saying that the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law overall has been set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now you can see those two words, weakness and uselessness in verse 18. Basically, the law made nothing perfect. The law was powerless to completely cleanse people so that they are able to draw near to God. The law could not do that, but this better hope can. It's a contrast. This better hope means that we can draw near to God. And this better hope has been introduced or it's been brought into effect by this. Listen, you ready? A Melchizedekian high priest. So what the writer's doing at this point is he's combining two things here. Our better hope, our better covenant, our better salvation is because of this high priest like Melchizedek. Those things are a package, okay? We gotta we got see these together. Better, better priest, better covenant. 
Better priest, better covenant. They come together. And that's what he's talking about in verse 20 when he says, and it was not without an oath. Look at that in verse 20. The it here is referring to this package. Better, better priest, better covenant. The it is talking about the better hope that we have through our high priest like Melchizedek. And we have that because of an oath. Now, what is this oath? This is an important word. The oath mentioned here in verse 20 is when God the Father swore to Jesus that he is our high priest like Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110.4. And we should just memorize Psalm 110.4. Okay, it is a really important verse to the writer of Hebrews. We've, we've seen that already over the past several weeks. It goes all the way back to chapter 5. This is actually the conclusion of what he started in chapter 5. It's, this, it's a big deal. The, the word oath is used here several times. It's mentioned in verse 20 and verse 21, and then it's mentioned again in verse 28. So this idea of an oath, it actually bookends the passage. Starts with the oath and it ends with the oath. So I just, I want you to hear again, listen again to what the oath is. This is really important to the writer of Hebrews. Psalm 110 verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here it is. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the oath that God the Father swore to God the Son, the Messiah, which means this, Jesus's high priestly ministry is distinctive. It's not, it's not like the Levitical priesthood. They were priests without an oath, but Jesus is our high priest like Melchizedek, which means it's not because of genealogy, it's not because of the law, but it's because God himself swore it. He made an oath. That's what, that's what Psalm 110 verse four means, and it hits different. Look at verse 22, this, this is Psalm 110 verse four, this, this is what he's talking about. Psalm 110 four, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And I'll be honest with you, I have never in my life used that word guarantor in a normal sentence, okay? I don't know if that's like common speech for most of you guys. I would rather say guarantor, okay? Um, just makes more sense to me, but we can understand what he's saying here, okay? Look, he's saying as a result of this oath in Psalm 110.4, because Jesus is our Melchizedekian high priest, he guarantees or, or he secures a better covenant, a better hope, a better salvation. That's what Jesus guarantees. But now in what way does Jesus guarantee this? That's the question that now sort of rises to the top here in the passage. Kind of rises to the top. The question is this, in particular, 
How does Jesus as our Melchizedekian high priest guarantee a better salvation? That question is what the rest of this passage explains. And there are really two explanations. We're going to look at both, but this first explanation is our second point. Here it is. This is point number two. Jesus as our Melchizedekian high priest guarantees a better salvation because he is our eternal high priest. This is verses 23 to 25, and I'm just following along. We're just, look, we're just unfolding what the Bible says. Verse 23, the former priests, this is the priests under the Levitical priesthood, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, he's different, see. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That is true of this Melchizedekian high priest. That's what Psalm 110 verse 4 says, and that's the writer's focus here. Notice in verse 21 that when the writer quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, he abbreviates the quote. Now the full quote or the full oath, which we just heard, the full oath in Psalm 110 verse 4 goes like this. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But here the writer stops short in verse 21. He just says, you are a priest forever. And he ends it there because that's his emphasis. That's his focus. Jesus as our Melchizedekian high priest means that he never clocks out. He never stops being our high priest because he never dies. Unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He will never die again. Therefore, he continues forever. Now we saw this a couple weeks ago. But it's worth saying again, I want to repeat this point you've heard before, but Jesus as our Melchizedekian high priest, Jesus as our Melchizedekian high priest is directly and deliberately connected to his resurrection. In fact, I think the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that this connection is of the highest degree. One way to think about it is to say it it like this. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, he therefore qualifies as the Melchizedekian high priest. That's true. But I think it's actually more than that. What's going on here is that because God swore to Jesus that he is the Melchizedekian high priest, that's why God raised him from the dead. Do you see the difference? The resurrection was the fulfillment of the oath in Psalm 110 verse 4. The resurrection was God's faithfulness on display of him doing what he told Jesus he would do. 
And so you better believe that this oath is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And it has already been fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead, which he is right now in this exact moment. In this moment right now, Jesus continues forever. Which means Jesus is not... This is, I want you to hear this. Jesus is not waiting on anything else to happen for him to start his high priestly ministry. Let's just sit in that for a minute. Many of you guys know my story. I've, I've shared it before. I, I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home. And uh, it wasn't though until I was around 18 years old that God really began to change my life. I, I wouldn't say that I ever hated God, but I was probably growing up, I was probably a good example of someone who was trying to find that minimum permissible Christ-likeness. But then when uh, the gospel of Jesus collided with me, when when the gospel truly confronted me, everything changed. Everything was different in my life. But it didn't mean that I had arrived at all, right? It didn't mean I arrived. It meant instead that I was starting a journey. And that, that journey metaphor of the Christian life has been really helpful to me. That's, that's the main metaphor of, of John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote that book in 1678, and it is insanely relevant. It is one of the most insightful books you will ever read. In fact, I'm going to read it again this summer, and I'd love for you guys, if you want to read it with me, let's read it together. It's just such an insightful, helpful book. And, and, and the idea in the book is that we, as Christians, are pilgrims on a journey. We're going somewhere, but we're not there yet. And that is so much of our faith, if you think about it. So much of our faith is just, it just it's, it's out there. It's ahead of us. I don't know about y'all, but I've been on this journey for at least 20 years. And it still very much feels like a journey to me. And there are some times in this journey when it feels like I'm just so far from home. Waiting. Just waiting. But you know what we're not waiting for? A high priest. The Psalm 110 word of oath that Jesus is our high priest like Melchizedek, that already 
is fulfilled. It has been fulfilled and it is active right now. Look at verse 25. Consequently, because Jesus is raised from the dead, because Jesus continues forever, because he is our priest like Melchizedek, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our eternal high priest now. He continues forever now. He lives right now. And what is he doing right now? He's making intercession for us. And that word intercession is just another word for prayer. For those who trust in Jesus, for, for we whom the Father has given to Jesus, John chapter 17. Jesus prays for us. He prays for us. And he's not praying for us just that we get our foot in the door. He's praying that we know salvation to the uttermost. He's praying to bring us all the way home. And I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes, but this is to see for, for right now. This is one way that Jesus guarantees a better salvation. It's because he is an eternal high priest. But there's a second explanation we start to see in verse 26. This is the third and final point. Number three goes like this. Jesus as our Melchizedekian high priest guarantees a better salvation because he is our perfect high priest. So verses 23 to 25 tell us that Jesus is our eternal high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. Now verses 26 to 28 are meant to confirm that it is indeed intercession that Jesus continues to make, not sacrifice. I need you to track, I need you to track with me here, okay? We gotta think here. Look at this. There are two things, two things necessary for Jesus to always live to make intercession for us. First, he has to always live, right? He has to live forever, which he does. But second, he also has to be perfect. Otherwise, if he was not perfect, he would not be able to keep interceding for us because he would also have to keep offering sacrifice for us, for his sins and for ours. See, that's what the Levitical priest had to do. But that's not Jesus as our high priest. He's different. Verse 26 tells us this. Look at verse 26. For it was fitting, and I, that is a great little word there, fitting. It means appropriate, or it means as it should be. Oh, what a, as it should be. For it was indeed as it should be that we have this kind of Melchizedekian high priest. Not just that he's a priest forever, but that he is, look here, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. These five characteristics here at the end of verse, nine, uh, verse 26, this is what makes Jesus not have the same sacrificial needs as the, Levit as the Levitical priest. 
because they were because the Levitical priests were sinners. Every day they kept accumulating sins that demanded sacrifice. Same thing for the people. But Jesus was, these, these words here, these three words in verse 26, Jesus was, is holy, innocent, unstained. Now some translations might say holy, blameless, pure. It's the same idea. The idea here is comprehensive moral perfection. The, the meaning for each of these words is basically the same. The reason that the writer does that, the reason when you see writers stack synonyms, boom, 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 back to back to back like that, the point is for emphasis. One scholar on the book of Hebrews says that, quote, taken together, these three adjectives forcibly describe the sinlessness of the high priest. That's an understatement, okay? Jesus was and is morally perfect and sinless beyond what we can understand. There's no example to point to. Every comparison falls short. The moral perfection of Jesus is sight-blinding, mind-bending perfection. That's what these last two characteristics are getting at in verse 26. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained. Look at these last two characteristics. He has been separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And the main idea here, I think, is not moral figurative separation, but it's literal spatial separation. Okay. Because Jesus is a real person, he occupies actual space-time reality, okay? He's got a body like us, except it's a glorified body. He was on this earth with, with that body, in that body. And in that reality, he physically, spatially removed himself from sinners in this world and he ascended into the heavenly dimension where he currently is. In other words, this is what we need to get clear. Jesus left here and he went there. Got that? He was physically, spatially here and he physically, spatially left here and went there in the heavenly dimension. So track with this, okay? I want you to track with this. I think that what the writer is highlighting in this description is not just where Jesus is now as our high priest, but it's that he's where he is now having first been here. Jesus was in this world. Jesus really did walk in our shoes, which means this. It means that his holiness and his innocence and his purity is not something that he possesses because he's in some far out heavenly glorified state. It's not right. Jesus was holy and innocent and unstained while he lived on this earth. Jesus was holy in, in your office on Monday morning. Je Jesus was innocent watching your TV 
when nobody else is around. Jesus was unstained, unstained in your most stressful of conversations, see. It's like the writer has already told us in chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus, our high priest, is one who in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That perfection that Jesus has, that moral perfection is a perfection that he realized here. And that is what he has carried into his high priestly ministry there. That's why he can sympathize, see? Do you see how it all fits? As Pastor Mike was talking earlier, the way of escape. Jesus chartered every way of escape when it comes to temptation. His holiness that he possesses right now is a holiness that has been tested to the extreme in this world. He doesn't need a sacrifice. Not Jesus. He's not like the Levitical priest. He has no sin of his own. He's perfect. Perfect. Now look at this last line here in verse 27. Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he had none, but Jesus offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people once for all when he offered up himself. And this is a new theme that we're gonna see now in the book of Hebrews. It's not just that Jesus is our high priest, but he also is our sacrifice. He is both our high priest and our sacrifice. As our high priest, he is the one who has entered the heavenly most holy place to sprinkle the blood of sacrifice. And as the sacrifice, it means that the blood he sprinkled is his own. And because he is the eternal perfect high priest, and the sacrifice is one of sight-blinding, mind-bending perfection. Once is enough. Once is plenty. The sacrifice was of such a glorious event that it was absolute, definitive, and unrepeatable. Which means this, Christian. Because of what Jesus has done, you are more forgiven and free than you can even begin to fathom. We can't fathom it. You are that forgiven and you are that free. Jesus is not a weak high priest like the priests of the old covenant, verse 28. Remember Jesus was made the Melchizedekian high priest by God's oath, Psalm 110 verse four. We can draw near to God. We do have a better salvation because our high priest, Jesus the Messiah, God the Son, here it is, has been made perfect forever. He is eternal and perfect. He has made the once for all sacrifice and offering himself and therefore now he always lives to make intercession for us. Here's one way to say it. Because Jesus is eternal, he always lives to make intercession for us. Because Jesus is perfect, it is intercession he makes, not sacrifice. That, that's basically Hebrews 7, 20 to 28 in a nutshell. That sentence I just said. 
But there's a question. Maybe you've thought about it. If Jesus always lives to intercede for us, what exactly is he interceding for us about? This is, this, is, this is an important question, right? Think about it. If Jesus' sacrifice was gloriously all-sufficient and once for all, as this book tells us, what then is left for Jesus to pray for us about? You get the question? Let me tell you first what it's not. This is what Jesus is not praying for us about. Because the cross really was all sufficient, Jesus is not constantly pleading with the Father to make the cross count. Jesus is not begging God the Father that the blood really stick, okay? This is for the level, this is for our imaginations. Jesus is not constantly pestering the Father about us. Please don't condemn them. Please don't condemn them. Please accept them. Please, 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 please. Nope. He doesn't do that. Got it? Jesus doesn't do that. At the cross, it was finished. Finished. That's how the book of Hebrews begins in chapter 1, verse 3. Remember? Speaking of Jesus, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's done. The sacrifice has been paid. The blood has been sprinkled. We are right now in God's eyes as definitively righteous as we will ever be. Okay? So what's he praying about? What is this intercession about? This is where it comes together in Hebrews. What has been the repeated theme that we've been seeing leading up to this point? Chapter three, chapter four, chapter six. The constant exhortation to the readers and to us has been to endure in faith, to hold fast to our hope, to keep believing. That's what Jesus is praying about. We get a picture of this in Luke 22. In the Gospel of Luke, this is Peter's story in Luke 22. Remember that there were two disciples who betrayed Jesus. There was Judas, who we know about, and there was Peter. Now we use the word denial to talk about what Peter did because we want to distinguish what Peter did from what Judas did. But it was a bold-faced denial, okay? Three times. He turned his back three times as a bold-faced denial of Jesus. Which means if we're looking in the Gospel of Luke, the, the real difference between Peter and Judas is what Jesus tells us in Luke 22, verse 31. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with Peter he says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Which is just wild that he's tell, telling Peter this. Imagine, Satan wanted Peter 
He wanted Peter. Satan wanted to crush Peter. But why didn't he? Jesus says to Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This moment, Luke 22, reminds me of how fragile life can feel. We are always stepping into the unknown. I've had these moments when we'll be having dinner as a family and you know, all my children are, are crowded around the dinner table and my wife, Melissa, here and grandma here and we got good food spread out in front of us and there's talking and clamor, but it's holy and it's wonderful. And in those moments, I can think, these were the best days of my life. And then I think, I may not have it tomorrow. I believe Jesus right now, see. We, we all believe right now, we believe him right now. But I don't know what kind of diagnosis I could get next week. That my wife could get next week. What if one of my kids, one of my, my younger kids, what if they're playing in the front yard and they chase a ball into the street and they get run over by a car? How, how will I be then if that were to happen? The question is, what could I be like as I look into an unknown future? My mentor in college used to tell, he used to tell me that we're always one day away from ruining our lives. It's pretty morbid, right? <laughs> the thing is, it's not untrue. God knows that we are dust. God knows we feel our weakness. God knows that we are fragile. And when we feel that, it's overwhelming. Except Jesus prays for me. See? Jesus prays that my faith may not fail. And that's why I'm going to keep clinging to him. It's not because I'm, I'm good or I'm smart or because I'm super spiritual. It's because, it's only because I have a great high priest who always lives to intercede for me. And, and, and when it comes to the imagination, I always think about, there's this scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress that I have to tell you about. I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's just so good. In this one scene, Christian, who's the main character, is being led by another character named Interpreter. And they're walking and they come to this fire, this blazing fire that's burning against the wall. And Christian looks at this fire and he sees that someone is standing by the fire who keeps dumping water on it. But, but every, the, 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 he's trying his hardest to put the fire out, but every time he dumps water on the fire, the fire just keeps burning higher and hotter. And so Christian asks interpreter what's going on, and interpreter explains to him, he says, the fire you see is the work of grace that God has wrought in the heart. And the person casting water on the fire is Satan. But you'll see 
that as more water gets cast on the fire, the fire only burns higher and hotter. And then interpreter, he takes Christian around to the other side of the wall. And there he saw a man with a bucket of fuel in his hand. And that man was continually casting the fuel into the fire, but doing it secretly. And then said, Christian, what means this? An interpreter answered him, this is Christ who continually with the fuel of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by which whatever the devil might do, the souls of his people persevere. I don't know. I don't know how hard things might be for you right now. Maybe you are overwhelmed with how fragile life can feel. Maybe you're fearful about your own heart or your future. I just want to remind you about what's happening on the other side of that wall. Jesus, your great high priest, he prays for you. He is pouring fuel on the fire of your faith. And it's not just so that you can get your foot in the door, but it's, you, it's for your salvation to the uttermost all the way where the very presence of God is home. That's what brings us to the table this morning. This table symbolizes the fellowship that we have with Jesus, and it's meant to be a foretaste. See, it's a, it's a pointer to that greater eternal feast that awaits us when we will be forever at home, seated at our Father's table with Him. That is the future for all who trust in Jesus. Jesus is able to save us to that day. And so if that's you this morning, if you're here and you trust in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if you cling to him, we invite you now to eat and to drink with us and to give him thanks. We'll serve the bread first, just retain it, then we'll come and eat it all together. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.